The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. We start with Shakespeare. I wonder that you will still be talking, Signor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What, my dear lady, disdain? Are you yet living? Is it possible disdain should die while she had such meat food to feed it as Signor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to disdain if you come in her presence. Then it's courtesy a turncoat. But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you accepted. And I would I could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart. For truly, I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. I thank God and my cold blood I am of your humour for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. God keep your ladyship still in that mind, so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinate scratched face. <laughs> Scratching could not make it worse, and for such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue. But keep your way, God's name, I have done. You always end with a jade's trick. So good. Part two of our discussion of great literary duos today on the history of literature. That was a great literary duo, Beatrice and Benedict, from Much Ado About Nothing, played by Kenneth Bronick, Emma Thompson. Will they make the list? We'll find out. In case you missed part one, Mike chose Hemingway and Fitzgerald for his first pick, the greatest literary duos of all time. I then chose Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin from the Patrick O'Brien novels. Mike chose Elena Ferrante's Elena and Lila from the Neapolitan novels. I chose Dr. Johnson and James Boswell. And now, part two of the literary draft Great Literary Duos, with Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. All right. For my third pick, I went with um, Roth and Bellow. Ooh, good one. My experience of the two of them, who are probably, you know, the two American literary giants of the century, of last century. I read Roth first. I, I read uh, Portnoy's Complaint first. And then I read uh, Goodbye Columbus and Letting Go, of all things. So I was really a big Roth fan and just devouring everything by him. And then, I don't know, somebody mentioned that Sal Bellow was better. And I remember thinking, like, what? Who's Sal Bellow? <laughs> and then I, I learned that, that you know, um, what Bellow had written. And I, I read Humboldt's Gift, which is, you know, an, an incredible book. And I've reread that book a couple of times, and I love that book. And then I was reading about their friendship. Um, and this is an example of um, kind of a, a master and servant. Um, yes. Bella, Bella was 18 years older, um, and, you know, by the time Roth published Goodbye Columbus, Bella was, had published his fifth book, um, Augie, or the book after Augie March, I think Henderson the Rankin, and they, they started up a, um, a literary friendship. They, they wrote about 30 letters to each other, and, uh, interestingly, in the letters, until probably the late 80s, so the majority of the letters, Bellow takes this position that he he is the superior one, and that, um, but Roth's talent is unmistakable. So he writes stuff like this. He says um, to Philip Roth, your capacity for looking things in the face is not inferior to mine. <laughs> a, a, a position that is almost, it's a little risky that the fellow took because clearly Roth is you know, getting uh, a, a lot of accolades, a lot of press. And to Roth's credit, whether he ever, you know, felt bitterness or Roth wrote back dutifully and said, you know, thank you for your time. You know, here's what I've been reading. They never really talked about um, writing, the process of writing or, you know, literature. They, they kind of just talked about their lives. So, in a sense, it, it's it was a literary friendship, but it was also I feel like they they were chums. They, they you know they they got to know each other and um, because of their writing. But at the end, what they really enjoyed was 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 each other's company. And that's a great pick. And and you know one of the interesting things about it is Roth apparently was writing in a whole different style before he encountered the works of Saul Bellow. And Saul Bellow, and the way that he wrote, and the way that he wrote about the Jewish-American experience, and it all kind of freed up Philip Roth to be the person that he eventually, the writer that he eventually became. And I think he always acknowledged that as, as kind of a debt, even if he uh, at times probably equaled or was, what was it, was not inferior. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people, uh, when they read the two of them, they, this is an example of kind of taking sides. You know, you, you have people, you have a fair number of people who, who, who like Roth better. 
than, than Bellow, which I think is, is crazy now. But um, they do. They, you know, they, they, they find Bellow to be more dated. Right. That something like Doc, Mr. Sandler's Planet is, is, is kind of laughable, the, the whole setup of that, in that novel or, right. or that Henderson Rain King is, you know, is a little bit of a children's book. And Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I wonder, I, I've always preferred Bellow as well. And I wonder if part of that, the reason why Bellow is starting to feel dated to some people, it reminds me, I'm working on this new episode where I'm reading a lot of poets from the, the fall of the Roman Republic, that era. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you look at someone like Virgil, who was always more respected and admired than Horace, and you read it and, and it's almost like propaganda for the state. You kind of, the concerns in it are a little dated, you know, how Rome was founded and what it means to be a Roman and all of these things. It doesn't really matter anymore now that we've moved on from that historical period. But someone like Horace, who was writing about, you know, personal relationships and friendship and love, and you can read that. And if the translation is fresh and the language is fresh, it feels like the concerns are still the concerns we have today. And in some ways, it seems like that's a parallel with with Roth and Bellow. I think of Bellow as having been more of a, a prize winner and, and more admired maybe because he was taking on the Cold War and the the latest, you know, intellectual arguments and and the themes, you know, big, broad social themes, which was great uh, for its time, especially. But sometimes you read it and you think, well, you know, this this is no longer the concern that animates us. And then you read Philip Roth's book and it might be a little more local, a little more internal, a little more personal, usually about one of his ex-wives who's, yeah. Usually, uh, sometimes a little bit uh, unpalatable. His I find him to be somewhat misogynistic at times. But in any case, it would be uh, something that you wouldn't need to be in the middle of the Cold War in order to appreciate. Yeah. Okay, so I am going to stick with that theme, which was my number three pick as well. I've already previewed it with uh, one of the characters, Virgil. And this is cheating a little bit. The The two that I'm taking here are... Uh, Dante and Beatrice, and Dante and Virgil. And the category that I was taking were artists or protagonists who find a muse or are influenced by another artist. Uh, And I had Bellow and Roth on my list here, along with authors like Shakespeare and Joyce or uh, Borges and Cervantes, and people who... It feels a little different to me than the sidekick relationship or the mutual friendship like we've been talking about. It's a little more one-sided. It's one character or author is more of a taker than a giver. And Beatrice, of course, inspired two of Dante's greatest works. He saw her when they were young teenagers. And the funny thing about this relationship is they never... It's not like they were lovers or anything like that. They, He basically just saw her on the streets and thought she was beautiful and never forgot her after that. Uh, they weren't... Uh, I think they maybe had some intersection in some social circles later, but but it was really just a... Uh, uh, almost like a someone might see a, a photograph or a, a painting or something as, for all the contact they had. But that was enough for Dante. He wrote La Vida Nuova just about that experience which is a great book. If you don't have the time to jump into the Divine Comedy, I would recommend picking up La Vida Nuova, which is a book I love. 
And then, of course, in the Beatrice in the Paradiso is she's essentially the queen of heaven, which is an awesome place <laughs> to be for someone. <laughs> you know, I wonder when I'm walking down the street if there's some author out there who's catching sight of me and and will end up writing a uh, placing me in charge of heaven the way Beatrice was. We don't really use muses like that anymore, I guess. But uh, in any case, Dante did and and. It's a great literary pairing. And then he also had the relationship with Virgil, which was an author who had come years before, and he recognized him as, he called him the Il Milior Fabro, which uh, was uh, something Pound, or Elliot used to describe Pound and their relationship. But he was saying, you're the better maker, you're the better poet. But you could see Dante wrestling with this idea. He has to put Virgil in hell because Virgil was born before Christ. And so he couldn't have recognized Jesus and and gotten into heaven that way. So he's in hell, but but Dante is you know makes him the guide that that's his guide through hell. Just in general, the the way that Dante uses these other figures, I think of Dante as being kind of a solitary guy, but to have Beatrice and Virgil as his companions in these narratives, uh, I thought made them a worthy pick for a literary duo. I never knew that he didn't sleep with Beatrice. That's a, you know that's interesting. Yeah, because back be. then you're, you're right. I like I like the analogy to uh, having a postcard of that person and being inspired. A photo. <laughs> right, right. And also in this category, I thought of you know some other great examples of a, a single author who was really relied upon. Uh, a family member or a spouse or, or someone to, you know, make sure that they had room to write or that their genius was something that could be shared with the world by taking care of all of the, I mean, uh, Nabokov and his wife Vera were in that category and uh, Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf and uh, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas were a good pair and Emily Dickinson and whatever, whoever that guy was that she sent her poems to. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. I thought that songwriting, I mean, I kept coming back to duos in, in the world of songwriting. I already mentioned Lennon and McCartney, but Jack White and Meg White kind of struck me mm-hmm. as being in this category where Meg White is this figure for Jack White. He's obviously the talented genius, but there's something about Meg White's drumming that always inspired him and he he admired the way it was more primitive and less polished than anything that an actual drummer you know a trained drummer would would do and then i thought of the great example of uh carly simon and warren Beatty, where they were actual lovers but warren Beatty's vanity inspired that song uh you're so vain which uh you know it's it's probably great to be warren Beatty, but on the other hand to have those lines like you walked into the party like you were walking aboard a yacht <laughs> and to know that to know that you've inspired art like that um your scarf it was apricot that's going to be in the song forever warren <laughs> yeah you know um the 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 supportive spouse or partner um my next pick is is along those lines but where the the partner or spouse was an equal um, but before I get there, I was just reading an interview with Robert Cairo in the Paris Review, 
and I, I, I had no idea that his wife, Emma, uh, was basically his research assistant. The, the, the two of them lived in Texas for three years, pouring through Lyndon Johnson's wow. uh, Senate files. So he, and I guess that's part of Cairo's, um, you know, five-volume take on Johnson is that he, he sort of changed the Senate before he changed the presidency. Right. So, but yeah, his his wife was there. The two of them were writing longhand notes, uh, you know, or notes on index cards. I mean, and I, I almost feel like she, you know, had she not been his wife, people would probably be paying more attention to her and saying like, who was this person? Right. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. It's like uh, Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. You know, there's a lot of debate about. Uh, I think he lifted a few passages from Zelda's diaries and Zelda had some ambitions of her own. And, and it's always been kind of this uh, open debate about was he, did he stifle her and was she more of an equal than she's often given credit for? But, uh, or, you know, the, the flip side is that she was, married to genius and any genius that sort of reflected off him that she would be forgotten if it weren't for him. And it's a, it's an interesting uh, topic and an interesting debate. I didn't know that about Robert Caro's wife. I've, I've read a few of his books, but obviously having not heard of her is, is pretty telling. Yeah. I mean, and going back to Zelda, you know, Zelda, and I was reading about this, Zelda kept far more, extensive and interesting journals than F. Scott. So F. Scott would often, you know, the two of them would gallivant and have a, have a grand old time the next morning, kind of the details would be fuzzy, but Zelda would sit and write the details. And then F. Scott would go back to her journals and look at that. See like, Oh, what was, where was that, you know, cliff where there was that beautiful party in the view. And, so, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people probably, you know, rightly so, don't consider her anywhere near his equal. But she did publish a novel, which I've never read, called Save Me the Waltz, about her relationship with Fitzgerald. And that that is on my really long list. Right. <laughs> so, but my pick was um, Aeneas Nin and Henry Miller. Ah. Um, and I kind of was torn between that and class and Jews and, Beauvoir and Chartres. I wanted to pick a couple where there was uh, intimacy and sex, if not romance, and literature. Because I think in, in many people's minds, you know, if a couple are both writers and they're involved, you know, the general public romanticizes that and think like, oh my gosh, you know, Paul Oster and Siri, what's her face? Or, you know, they're involved, they live together, they write together, they publish together. And I think that's probably relevant, like 10% of their lives. Right. I think the rest of their time, they're like typical writers um, being by themselves, being by themselves writing. And so, um, you know, Aeneas and Henry Miller, they they kept, I guess, what I want to think of as the literature aspect of their relationship alive by writing these incredible letters for 20 years. Um, they, they were both newly married when they met, and then they decided that their their spouses were were you know, big mistakes. And so 
neither of them, I think Henry Miller got divorced, but men wouldn't. You know, she was a, a Cuban writer. I think religion probably played a part in not wanting to get a divorce. But the two of them had um, on and off affairs, on and off relationships. They traveled together, you know, and they wrote to each other for 20 years. And I think it's one of these examples that you know, with the passage of time, these this this body these body this body of letters has become, you know, as grown in stature. Right. It, it's almost to the point where perhaps it dwarfs a little bit of their writing because I don't know if Henry Miller, if anyone's really reaching for Henry Henry Miller, other than nineteen-year-old boys. I'm not sure he even comes up as really relevant anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. It almost seems like when they are lovers, it it. Uh, I had uh, Beauvoir and Sartre on my list, uh, and a few others come to mind while you were talking, like Paul Bowles and Jane Bowles. And it almost seems like when there is a romantic relationship, especially if the writing kind of fades into time, that the romantic relationship itself still has currency for movies or you know someone to be inspired by the by the relationship and write a book about that we're endlessly fascinated it seems like with writers from the past and and their creativity and then to think that there was a romantic relationship that was infused with this creative energy from both sides um Abelard and Eloise is a another great example of that uh, it's that may be where Henry Miller and Anais Nin end up. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it has to be inspiring to be, um, to have your partner struggling to write and then succeeding. That has to, no doubt. But it also must be kind of infuriating and the, the feelings, the complex feelings of competition and, you know, resentment, like, well, I need succor now, and here you are also in, you know, a deep depression and, you know, stewing in the corner. And that's my job because I'm, you know, so I thought that was somehow to make it work for that long. And I, I think, you know, if I knew more about Beauvoir and Sartre, I would have put them, uh, I would have picked them instead instead of Nin and Miller. Um, but I, I feel like I can't quite do them justice because I, I haven't really read either of them other than excerpts. Okay, so I am going to take a, a pick and go in the opposite direction and uh, choose two authors who are not lovers, and certainly uh, it is highly unlikely that they ever will be because they are enemies and they hate one another. Um, this is uh, an unusual pick, but I, I had to have something from this category of these uh, bet noirs. Um, is uh, Jonathan Franzen and Jennifer Weiner. <laughs> and I don't know if you're familiar with this feud, but it's basically I, I'm not much of a fan of Jonathan Franzen's writing. Uh, he's sort of one of the current grand poobas of the literary world, and his books are always accompanied by a lot of fanfare. He comes out with a novel every few years, and it's one of those stop the presses moments for literary magazines, and they put him on the front page and interview him, and, and everybody reads the book, and and offers her thoughts and everything. And Jennifer Weiner is really in a different category. She's a, she writes genre books, but she's pointed out, um, and has kind of made it her, uh, you know, her position. She's become a focal point of the criticism of the world. Um, 
of the literary world and literary criticism world and the whole machinery of books and, and the publicity machine and the New York Times Book Review and the New Yorker. And what's interesting is it's easy to say to dismiss her, which I think Jonathan Franzen has done and said, you know, well, my books are serious and hers are not, and that's too bad. And if she's jealous, that's too bad. But she's not really saying that. She's saying something different where she acknowledges and says, I do, you know, what I do writing these romance novels is different from what he does. But why are there more uh, female reviewers? Why are there more male reviewers than female reviewers? of literary fiction? Why does the New York Times cover Jonathan Franzen's book in a way that it doesn't cover a female uh, literary fiction author? And why, this is kind of interesting, why do they cover uh, crime fiction and science fiction and not uh, romance or chick lit or you know, any of those that are traditionally associated with women? And one of the interesting things about it is women are... Uh, the vast majority of today's readership um, men Ooh. are men are kind of dropping off of the radar as far as reading books. I think it's I don't know. I've seen statistics where it's it's forty sixty or thirty seventy or something. And so she makes a lot of good points, but I just love that she gets under his skin. She's kind of his, uh, you know, she's always hanging around and always poking a, you know, she's the the needle that that punctures his bubble. She seems to bring out him at his highest uh, pomposity, which always <laughs> which always makes me laugh. I enjoy their feud more than I enjoy his books, I think. Some other, you know, in a lot of this, when it, it's in literature, a lot of times the characters end up getting together. I was thinking of like Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy or, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're enemies at first, but then by the end you realize how much they need each other or how much they actually belong together. But then, you know, I also like the the just the pure enemies like Othello and Iago or Holmes and Moriarty. And sometimes it's nice yeah. when a, a figure just has this yeah. obstacle that they can never get rid of. Well, it, when they always say the hero is only as good as the enemy, you know, that um, I, I mean, not to not to bring it to 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 film, but. Um, like the, the reason that Dark Knight was any good. I mean, I'm, actually, let me refer to the graphic novel rather than just we're talking about books. The only reason that Dark Knight was was interesting at that, you know, um, so great was because of Bane, the enemy. So you, you sort of need a, a good enemy, or else you're you're kind of bored and swatting the villains with one hand. Um, but you know, I like I like Franzen and. Um, I followed his career pretty closely. I think, you know, uh, his nonfiction, I think, is, is incredible. Um, he, he wrote a, a series of essays, How to Be Alone, which um, was a big hit. And I think, you know, kind of eloquently touches upon things that a lot of people who like literature are struggling with today, which is like, why can't I watch as much television as I want? You know, what What do I do with all these books and how do I make other people interested in books? So he, he's, he's kind of a, a a nerd who, which I respect, who wants people to read more and challenge themselves more. He has a, he has a very funny essay on William Gaddis and how much um, he, he wanted to love him and then ended up kind of hating him. Um, 
But yeah, the whole thing with Oprah and, and now Jennifer, um, you know, I, I know where he's going, but um, I, I sort of don't. I, I wish he wouldn't get embroiled in these kind of discussions because <laughs> I, I think it's when I think of the media, it's so easy to be portrayed as a bad guy when um, you're kind of going up against, you know, uh, the majority. And I think the majority don't really, and, and not to demean the majority, but the majority of people don't read literary fiction. It's kind of a no-win situation for him to, to wage this, this battle. And so um, it's almost better, you know, just being silent because no matter how, how, how well he crafts his counter-argument, it's almost like a counter argument to the wrong, to, to, to the bad side. Yeah, he really, uh, he really doesn't do himself any, uh, he does himself a disservice by this because he also, you know, the, it will blur into people's reading of his books and, you know, the Jennifer, yeah. Jennifer Weiner and kind of the, the Twitter verse, they'll look for the way his female characters are portrayed and, mm-hmm. If he were giving more ground in, you know, if he he's kind of his own worst enemy, he's always shooting himself in the foot. He'll say things that that start out by making you think he's going to agree with the critics and be on the side of, um, you know, that uh, women's voices should be more heard or something. And then he'll undermine himself with kind of a, a remark that's comes across as snobbish or something. But then what that will do is it'll it'll give people this laser like focus on his female characters and to use that in their battle against Jonathan Franzen. And you're right. If he were just silent or if he were just, uh, would, could limit his own remarks in his personal feuds about the nature of literature or the nature of the literary world, he would probably not inspire this attack on his female characters. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, th- th- there's certain ways to approach it. Like I want, I love poetry and I want more people to read poetry, but I'm not going to go around telling people to read poetry because, you know, poetry, you, whenever you want to take that, if, if that's your end goal, you, you have to, you have to befriend the person, find out how they spend their time, what time they go to sleep and like, try to work it in. And the way Franzen is like, well, if you love poetry and you love your life enough, you'll find time for poetry. And it's like, you know, that's going to fall on deaf ears. Right. So. <laughs> I like the one where he was talking about the narcissistic tendencies of technology. And he had an essay about that. And he was saying, like, there's people are so immersed in this technology, they forget what actual love is and they're they're not engaged in actual love anymore and then the example he gave of actual love was his own love for bird watching <laughs> which, <laughs> which... well you see that, so that that's that's the nerdiness that i like about him i think you know he he you know he sets a high he sets a high bar but he doesn't have the charisma to and and not to bring in David Foster Wallace, I'm accused by some friends of always bringing in David Foster Wallace into every conversation. But um, Foster Wallace says, you know, there's time for Shakespeare and there's time for Golden Girls. Right. That there's actually a ton of time in your life 
And so if you can squeeze it all in, if you try to squeeze it in, you, you, you can't. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't make fun of, you know, the latter just because you love Shakespeare. Um, and I, I feel like that's the, you know, he's on the other side of the spectrum from Franz and it's, it's like, well, this is an essay about Shakespeare. Why are we, why are we discussing, you know, Betty White? Okay. So you're down to your last pick. What do you have for pick number five? All right. I went with uh, Martin Amos and Julian Barnes. Um, you know, talking about literary circles, <clears throat> these guys were friends with uh, Rushdie and Salman Rushdie and Ian McEwen and the poet James Fenton and Christopher Hitchens. And I think at, at some point, a bunch of them worked at, interned at the New Statesman. So they, they would meet together, they would make fun of their employers, meet together for beers and coffee and talk literature and talk about their aspirations. And you know, can't help but have inspired each other to, you know, who would publish first, who would become more famous, who would win the Nobel and, you know, you know, tall goals. And so, um, but among them, uh, Amos and Barnes became very close. And I think while their writing is quite different, they're both very stylistic writers. And so, you know, Julian Barnes would be much more experimental with a book like, you know, the history of the world in ten and a half chapters or Flaubert's Parrot. And uh, my name is focusing really on taking voice and stream of consciousness to the next level. Um, you know, while they were different, they they kind of respected each other and saw uh, the other's moves and probably were thinking like, okay, Barnes has done that. What, what do I want to do? Or Amos is, wants to try to do this. And so, they were very good friends um, until, uh, and at, 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 during their friendship, Amos um, had hired Barnes's wife to be his agent. So they were very good friends until, uh, as the story goes, Amos wanted to have his teeth fixed. Yes. <laughs> and um, apparently, this he had not gone to the dentist in like two decades or something. He needed money so, for this. He needed money to have his yeah. teeth fixed. And if you read Amos's early works, there's all kinds of characters who are having nightmares about all their teeth falling out or like teeth is, <laughs> is a big trope in Amos's early works. Yeah, so the, he, he um, heard through the grapevine that this notorious agent, Andrew Wiley, who had secured Roth, uh, quite a big advance, promised Amos that he could get um, half a million quid for his next novel. So he, he fired Pat Kavanaugh, Barnes's wife, and um, Barnes wrote a letter to Amos that ended with the words, fuck off. Right. So that was the end of the relationship. And to, to throw um, fuel on the fire, Amos who was a bit of a womanizer, had a, had an affair with Kavanaugh's half-sister, Julie, and that didn't end well. And so that's ended uh, what I think was probably kind of for a long stretches, the ideal literary relationship, friendship. That, you know, when you're a writer, this is the kind of friendship you dream of having. Right. Uh, and, it, and it ended badly. And they could read each other's works, and they could offer each other 
criticism and then they would write reviews of each other's books, I think, and, and, uh, praise each other. And they were, they were allies for a long time. Uh, have they patched things up? Do you know? No, they didn't. Still enemies. I mean, there's still time. There's still time because Pat Kavanaugh passed away. Apparently, um, they, there was a dinner party where she and Amos were chatty. That's what I heard. Mm. <laughs> Before she passed away. <laughs> right. So that, that was, but Barnes was not there. So it might be one of those weird, uh, you know, um, meandering epilogues where uh, Pat's not as mad at, and wasn't as mad as at Martin as, as Julian was. Right. Julian was defending her. Yeah. Oh, oh, and here's the last bit of a uh, little, little clue to their relationship. Um, Kat Kavanaugh uh, came from a, a wealthy family, and when she died, she had an estate of 3.8 million pounds, and she left 5,000 pounds to Amos's son, right. who was her godson. Wow. Uh, right. And um, in the British literary world, becoming, being as gossipy and petty as they are, were shocked by this. Right. Well, I wonder if so, it was for uh, orthodontist bills. That seems like, <laughs> seems like about the right amount. The, the whole incident with Andrew Wiley was interesting. And, I mean, his nickname is The Jackal. But if I understand it correctly... it he basically was saying um, everyone else was kind of content with what they were earning because it was based on their sales. But what Wiley was saying is you're worth more to these publishing houses because you're a prestige name or you're, they'll overpay for you. You'll be more of a loss leader uh, because they want to, you know, be nominated for the prizes or all of that. And it, my guess is it probably ended up helping Pat Kavanaugh and Julie and her clients and Julian Barnes and all the others that this became the model. If it's not in place today, it, it sort of helped a generation of authors live more comfortably and live more, freed them up to write more. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. You can look at it. It, it takes a long view and that, you know, any time an agent can secure a bigger advance, you know, that that, that has to be good for the, the writer side of the industry. Yeah. Huh. I never thought of that. I just think of Andrew Wiley as, as, as so cutthroat, but maybe he is doing some good in the long term. Right. Um, okay. So my fifth pick, um, I took, uh, God and Job from the book of Job. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wanted to do something a little bit different for my last pick. And so the category is, man and some divine some divinity or some divine figure i did a a whole episode on the book of job so i I won't go into it too much but basically uh job gets hammered by light god and satan make this bet where uh, god is saying that you know people will love god and and not satan and satan says well that's easy because you just give them stuff and then they'll they'll like it so god said well i'll take this faithful member of my tribe and impose on him every hardship imaginable and even when he does nothing wrong at all to deserve it and we'll see what what will happen and the question is will he still love god and believe in god even when he's been visited by all of these terrible tragedies and what i love about this this book is 
the the whole Judeo Christian tradition requires faith. That a lot of times it all comes down to, well, you just need to have faith, or these are, you know, God works in mysterious ways, or these these are things you cannot know the answer to, and it feels it can feel kind of like a cop-out that a, a religion, any religion that's worthy would have answers to this that would go beyond, well, you just have to trust us on this one. And what I love about, about the book of Job is it takes this question head on and it basically says, um, you're not worthy to even question this. It's, it's, you know, we get that we're asking you to have faith. That's just the way it's going to have to be. And God, you know, in this great monologue with Job, God says, you know, where were you when I created the world? And the idea, you know, like, obviously I'm going to know things that you don't know. And obviously there are going to be things that that are just going to be beyond your understanding, which might not be a satisfying answer, I guess. But when I read the monologue, I'm, I, I can go with it. And what I like best of all is just that the Old Testament is saying, we hear you, that this is a, a question you're going to have, which is, how can you be expected to to take all of this on faith? And it, it uh, puts it into this wonderful story. Um, the other example of this that I kind of wanted to choose was Arjuna and Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita, which I just did in a, a recent podcast episode where on the eve of this there's this long epic book, the Mahabharata, and it has this two warring families, and a lot of it is just adventurous stories. And then on the eve of this epic battle, the prince Arjuna and his chariot driver go out to survey the field, and the prince has this crisis of confidence, and he looks at the two sides, and there's families on both sides, and he says, how can I lead them to slaughter, and how is that consistent with my faith, and and you know the the focus i need to have on peace and serenity and my own personal development and how can i how can i lead these troops where brothers are going to be killing brothers and and how you know how is this being detached from the real world the way that i i want to be and the way that my faith suggests that i should be and the chariot driver gives him several arguments for how he's a a soldier and he needs to do soldierly things and that's what he's on the earth to do and and there's something pure in that and just focusing on the action and and not letting others down and and all of those kinds of arguments and then the chariot driver reveals himself as the incarnation of god and it's (laughs) it's this fantastic philosophical discussion right in the middle of you know you have hundreds of pages of this epic novel and then there's this section that is a beautiful spiritual discussion a philosophical discussion and to think that that's in the middle of what is essentially excuse me what is essentially like an action movie um i know you were a big fan of schwarzenegger movies back in the day i'm not sure if any of his movies have an interlude like that where uh, you're invited to wrestle with some of the most philosophical questions ever known to man it's probably a scene like that in Predator. <laughs> so well, that that thing, that thing reminds me of um, you know of Falstaff and Hal. You know, just thinking of uneven relationships for a long time. I mean, not that Job gets the upper hand, but you know, they, for for so much of that relationship, Hal is you know in awe of Falstaff. 
Right. And, and then he dismisses him. Oh, know, I know. Notoriously in Henry the Fifth. And it's one of the most incredible scenes in Shakespeare. I'm glad you mentioned that one. That is a, uh, uh, that's that one. Let's call that pick number 11. Uh, that certainly belongs <laughs> on a list of literary duos. And in this, in this vein of man and, and divinity, I had uh, God and Moses and God and Noah. is another great relationship. Uh, God and Jesus would be an interesting one to think about. Of course, I'm assuming that the Bible, I'm reading the Bible as literature here, of course. Jesus and Judas yeah. would be an interesting, or Jesus and Peter, Jesus and Mary, Jesus and everyone, really, is, I mean, that, like the duo, what would it be like to be Jesus or to know Jesus, to be any sort of person who encounters Jesus, you're sort of just asking for a, a duo there. And then the other the other example that I thought of was uh, John Milton and Satan, where the, oh. he's writing this uh, this poem and he's he's devout and he's doing all of this for the the glory of of God, and then Satan just runs away with the show. <laughs> just, which, yeah, you're talking about examples of where the uh, the villain is more appealing and you know more charismatic. Yeah, exactly, and. The Book of Job, I like that it has that bet with God and Satan, where, uh, you know, it, it, I wondered as I was thinking about this, where that bet happened. You know, did they, did Satan come visiting in heaven, or uh, did God, you know, was he slumming around in hell? Or, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess if it happened nowadays, they'd just meet in Vegas. <laughs> Which is heaven or hell? So let me uh, let me recount the list, and then I'll give you a chance to throw in any uh, ones that were hard for you to leave out, or any final thoughts. So your picks were Hemingway and Fitzgerald, uh, Elena and Lila from the Elena Ferrante Neapolitan novels, uh, Philip Roth and Saul Bellow, Annie Nin and Henry Miller, and Martin Amis and Julian Barnes. I see a lot of twentieth century authors on that list, Mike. Um, my list was uh, Captain Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, uh, Dr. Johnson and Boswell, the biographer, Dante and Beatrice slash Dante and Virgil, Jonathan Franzen and Jennifer Weiner, and God and Job. So who were the, who were the toughest ones for you to leave off? Um, I, you know, I wanted to work in... Jane, Jane Austen, some Jane Austen characters like Elizabeth and Jane Pennett. Yes. I just felt like if anyone has done the contrast complementary character, uh, it's Jane Austen. I think she's incredible at that. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and I think it, it, you know, it's so rewarding as a reader to, to see like a friendship developed in an interesting way. And I think that's why a lot of people just keep going back to Jane Austen. Yes, very true. That is, that is the perfect uh, way of describing it. And, and you think of them almost like a parts of a, of a Swiss watch or something, the way they, they can fit together and the way they ultimately, you know, it's like a puzzle or some puzzle pieces or something where they just clink together and snug up and each, each one fits each other in a perfect way, and a whole book can be revolve around just different puzzle pieces and the way they interact with one another. How about you? What? What? Wait. Let's go through your list. And... Okay, so a few that I wanted to include: um, 
uh, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot were a couple. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and then a few that were a little more uh, off the board. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes, I think, is a great uh, <laughs> <laughs> a great literary duo. I've read some interesting things recently uh, by uh, interviews with Bill Watterson where he talks about the two of them. And that's a fascinating relationship to me. And Nick and Nora Charles, I like the the idea of a married couple that is in love with each other and it's not just strife, but that they're working together. Those are the Thin Man from the Thin Man movies and books. Um, Keats, Keats and Shelley was a tough one. Uh, Romeo and Juliet were on my list. Uh, Falstaff and Hal, you mentioned. Um, Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell had a really interesting relationship. And... Uh, I had a, a special note here to take another look at Frog and Toad, which I <laughs> I didn't get into, but I think for some of our younger listeners, that might be the literary duo that is uh, is most prominent in their minds. You know, I was just talking to my daughter about this moment in Frog and Toad, and I think it's one of the most amazing literary moments. It's uh, where I, I forget which one is the curmudgeonly uh, anal one. I think it's probably Toad. So they make a list of things to do that day, yes. and the wind takes the list and blows it away, and they don't chase after the list because Todd points out, Toad points out that the list did not say chase after the list. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I love the fact kids like that. It is great. Yeah. <laughs> the frog and Toad are great. And there's moments in there that's genuinely moving, you know, the two of them. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's end it there. And uh, I want to thank you again for joining me, uh, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, thanks again for being on the History of Literature. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay, that's going to do it for our episode on the greatest literary duos of all time. I'm Jack Wilson. You can find more at jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, or send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.